0: Hello, Legionaries. This is General Lance, as always. This is the War Room. We're here with Sergeant Barnes and, of course, Alaric the Barbarian. Here he is uh, sharing with us his newest publication through Dissident Reviews um, by resurrecting a titan of American vitality. In fact, it's even titled so. It says, A Portrait of American Vitality. It's amazing. Richard Harvey Davis absolutely the gold standard of war correspondence and accurate and vital, how do you say, story writing. And so, without much further ado, Alec the Barbarian, welcome.
1: Hey, thank you for having me on.
0: Hey, thanks brother. Uh, Honestly, you know, it's been a couple weeks or actually a few months, unfortunately we're supposed to link up earlier, but as soon as I had this in my hands, or at least as soon as I saw that you had... Announced it. I needed it. I needed it. I had to surface my U-boat off the coast of Argentina. I had to get secure my copy from Amazon, and I did. And I'm so happy that I got it because honestly, it's it's a very high quality. And I'll make sure to have the link, by the way, Legionaries in the uh, comments section below for you to buy it yourself. You will buy it. Um, and uh, I just wanted to ask you a couple questions. What what really drew you to this author before? You had even published it. I had no idea who this guy was. And as soon as I started reading about him, I was kind of kicking myself in the head, you know, wishing I had known about him. So tell me about how did you get around to this? What what happened? Why did this become created? What, what's up with that?
1: Well, that's the thing with Davis. Almost nobody knows about him today. Uh, he's sort of been forgotten in the American literary canon. And I actually stumbled on notes of a war correspondent while I was just going through the like bookshelves in uh, Gutenberg because I was looking for you know public domain works that I could uh, work with. And I saw one that said war, so automatically interested there <laughs> <laughs> and ended up reading uh, his coverage of the Cuban Revolution. And from there, I just went on a rabbit hole of reading about this guy. And it's, it's remarkable how easily we can forget somebody if they don't play into a historical trend that we want to impose on the past. Mm-hmm. And Davis just doesn't. Uh, he's completely outside of the normal dichotomies that we think about with American history. And he was wildly popular at the time. So it's just very surprising to me that people don't know that much about him now. And obviously his writing is incredible. Soldiers of Fortune, as a, a true American novel, is unmatched. And I'm 99% sure F. Scott Fitzgerald plagiarized it openly The Great Gatsby.
0: Of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I believe that, too.
0: I mean, he, he also plagiarized a number of works from his wife, too. I, I don't think it's he's above that. But in any case, um, so obviously i'm a huge fan of this book i I think i read it in like two goes in two days it it was extremely easy to read but in a good positive way and i'm sure you felt that same way too it's just so engrossing and it it makes you feel like you're there and i i am surprised i'm surprised that a lot of modern you know soy journalism i mean of course they're not gonna they're not gonna cover this this uh journal you know old journals i hate saying journals because to me that's like a demon but uh you know this guy is like a writer he's a true writer on its own stands its own like uh, literary value and so um you know before we get into the substance of the book i kind of wanted you to explain to me your personal project with Alaric the barbarian obviously you're very interested in war i wanted you to give your like you know synopsis of of your kind of mission statement
1: well i uh i started Taking social media seriously because I wanted to get my writing out. Uh, actually, a year ago, as of yesterday, was when I made my like this Twitter account, uh, which is crazy to think about. But I just wanted to start, you know, putting out my ideas on primarily history and fighting. Uh, I'm not. We, we talked about this prior to the, the beginning of the recording, but I, I'm not a veteran or anything. I'm just a, a martial arts guy um, and an amateur historian. And I wanted to sort of take my thoughts on that, and a bunch of essays and whatnot that I had done and never put anywhere, and I wanted to get it to an audience. Mm-hmm. I thought I might get a thousand people at most. Now I have thirty-five thousand followers. So <laughs>
0: and Elon Musk that's apparently crazy.
1: <laughs> but with the Disney <laughs> review, though, that was more of a like an intentional political project. Mm-hmm. Um, it, with my experience in the academic world as well as in. Um, just general you know, literary spheres and media, I, I've realized that history is a powerful, powerful lever for political power. And we're, we've just ceded it to a group of basically ideological terrorists that change it and alter it and whatever. The, the goal is to absolutely reinterpret the past to frame whatever's happening right now as the best thing ever. And I just wanted to counter that. So with the dissident review, I, I started publishing people that didn't have any sort of they were either anonymous or didn't have any like credentials or backing to them, you know, just an outside of the regime publishing endeavor. And I wanted to start doing primary sources as well, with the Davis collection being the very first, because I think that's the most powerful thing is reading something, reading an actual contemporary account or contemporary literature just breaks any dichotomies you might have in your brain. And plus, it's way more enjoyable than what's coming out today.
0: Oh, of course. And and I mean, on top of everything else, I I think the greatest thing about anonymous culture is that, um, you know, basically the credential system, so they control the universities and academia, right? And so that's how they choke out anyone with our views in uh, higher academia, achieving high credentials with the the exception of an exceptional few Um, And so uh, anonymity and the popularization of anonymous sources has actually helped a lot of good content come out, which otherwise would not have, simply because of the fact that the whole credential berm has been maneuvered around, you know what I mean? Which is, I think, great. And I think you're doing an awesome job at the Dissident Review, if you don't mind me saying so. But anyway, go uh, mar- marching forward. So of course we talk about history and I'm sure you're aware of people like Francis Fukuyama who in the 90s declared that the history is at an end that we are the last men and therefore even though there are death throes and you know some minor skirmishes that may happen that ultimately the arc of history points to death. And uh you know I feel vindicated every year uh you know whether it's Putin or uh, Xi Jinping or a number of other different, you know, politicians or, or, you know, cultural critics or cultural creators that actually prove that thesis wrong and make uh, Francis Fukuyama lose sleep at night. That makes me very happy every time because we're not dead yet. No one's dead. And I think that's a really good, important, uh, you know, I guess, uh, thesis to have. But furthermore, I would say this, is that, uh, you know, the parallel between Richard Harding Davis is that he was – during the time of the Russo-Japanese War, war correspondent, and specifically for the Japanese, the Imperial Japanese. Furthermore, of course, we are probably aware, we're in a proxy war, the United States is in a proxy war with Russia, uh, through, of course, uh, let's see, like, you know, the Ukraine, but vice versa happened, where it was Korea that was being contended over, and the war of Imperial powers was happening. Many people don't know, for instance, that, uh, the American Civil War was the locus of a myriad of different great power politic interests. So for instance, France and Mexico, um, the British were about to aid the uh, Confederate States in a bid to split the United States of America, and the Russians stepped in with their imperial fleet and parked, <laughs> parked it off of New York Harbor. So uh, I just want to kind of dive into the text here and uh, just talk about his experiences, for instance, uh, you know, unparalleled experience uh, in the Russo-Japanese War and the witness to a new style of war. I wanted to, first of all, before we begin, have any thoughts of your own that you might have.
1: Well, on the uh, Russo-Japanese War, I know that Davis was and, and you see this in some of the correspondence with his family at the time. He was very frustrated by uh, the, the censorship and the logistics that he was experiencing. And he, he found the Japanese sort of um, finicky, <laughs> which is like he talks about how a Japanese general of some sort asked to see all of his supplies and then took his camping chair, which was this very fancy folding camping chair and just straight up stole it from him. And then the a year later all of the Japanese officers were issued a replica of the same chair and this this incensed him greatly. <laughs> so just the the cultural difference there. And again this is, you know, 1905, uh, there's still a very strong foreignness to East Asia from an American observer. So the the main thing that struck me with that at least on a on a writing level and on a experiential level was the the difference in the culture there that, that sort of freaked him out because he was a very much a red blooded American type of, of the old sort that almost doesn't exist anymore.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I was just thinking about that. I think it's really interesting that he's talking about the, uh, as himself as a, uh, or rather uh, the 48th Ronan. I thought that was the most interesting little kind of tidbit. If you don't mind me reading real quick, just so that way the audience has a, a sense of what we're talking about specifically, but Uh here I'll go. Absolutely, yeah. So That's a beautiful piece, absolutely agreed. Yeah, May nineteen oh four. The Japanese War Office has issued a war correspondence pass to mister Davis and has assigned him to the second column. Today a small piece of flesh, which is once portion of the body of a young naval officer, was buried here with such honors from the Mikado and government and on the part of the people with such demonstrations of reverence that as half-saint, half-hero, the memory of Commander Herozi now ranks in Japan near to that of the 47 Ronin. Herozi attempted what Hobson attempted and in the venture lost his life, that he died in an effort to save the life of one of his crew as well as in an effort to serve his country has not lessened the value of his sacrifice. The sentiment of the Japanese toward him is the same sentiment that Kipling declares considers less the commissary general than the Tommy who steps aside outside the square to drag a comrade to safety. On the night of the second attempt to block the entrance to Port Arthur, Hirozi commanded one of the four steamers marked out for self-destruction. They were picked up by the two Russian searchlights and remainder of the run was made under a terrific fire from both guard ships and the forts. Hirozi's steamer, the Fukuz Ilaru, had reached the harbor mouth and was about to anchor in the entrance when she was struck by a torpedo. At the moment, Sugino, a gunner, was below the lighting below lighting the magazine, which was to blow up the vessel and let in the water. But the torpedo had let in the water, and Hirozi and his crew were escaping from the sinking steamer in the shore of boats before they discovered that Sugino... Excuse me, Sugino was not with them. Hiroshi instantly climbed again on board and ran below, searching for the missing man. He failed to find him, and on returning to the deck and learning he had not yet reached the shore boat, twice again went below, and last time remained there until the rush of the rising water drove him on deck. He had just dropped in safety into the shore boat when a shell struck him and tore him into small pieces. One of these pieces fell in the boat, it was buried today. But before it was buried, it was treated with honors paid to a reigning monarch. As it passed in the transport that conveyed it to Japan, it received the salutes of the entire Japanese fleet. The guns were fired, the yards were manned, the flags lowered to half-staff. Later, a detail of officers escorted it to Tokyo, where it was met with great concourse of people, and today it was borne on a gun carriage to the grave. The people turned out to do it reverence, and in thousands and thousands lined the streets. Before the procession moved, the Mikoto sent to Hirozi's family a roll of silk, a compliment. A compliment, the importance of which can be understood only here, and raised Hirozi and his family to the superior grade at court. And at once, his statue is to be erected in one of the public parks. This, in a city where the only statues I have seen are those of imperial princes. Already the true story of Hirozi is being hung with legends. As the transport, carrying the piece of flesh past the battleship on which Hirozi had served, the engines refused to work, and for a few minutes of transport lay motionless. And in quotations, This, which happened before the eyes of the whole squadron, says a Japanese paper published last week in Yokohama, made a great impression upon all who witnessed it. It was, at though, it was as though the brave Herozi even in death, refused to be separated from the ship in which he had held command. And that concludes that specific article. So I, I just wanted to your thoughts real quick. I mean, uh, for me, I, I have a lot of thoughts myself I'll share after, but your thoughts specifically.
1: Yeah, well, that, that article is one of the more haunting pieces in there, and... It's short, it's punchy, it's journalistic, but still, it it hits you. And the thing that strikes me most about that article, at least, uh, also comes through in a lot of his other work, especially on the, the Boer War and the Spanish-American War, uh, is this appreciation of valor and vitality and just prowess in general. He always, he didn't really care who was demonstrating it. He just appreciated this sense of greatness that you could find in certain people. Mm-hmm. And... Almost all of his writing in some way is uh, like a direct, not a eulogy, but a a call out to these people that have distinguished themselves in the the great drama that is warfare. And it's, it's just incredible writing and incredible experiences to see this stuff firsthand.
0: No, it's exactly how I feel. And in the United States, I think we're impoverished in a way because we don't have... The same history i mean we 're a merchant we 're a merchant republic who obsesses over money unfortunately right that's that 's the, uh, uh, the the way the anglo soul works but it doesn 't have to be that way because um i mean as you can see for instance, like the cult of the hero for instance he 's hung up next to you know the sovereign monarchs who for those that of you that, that don 't know the Japanese tradition that the royal family is descended of literal gods. Um, And, you know, obviously this is a 1907, the age of imperialism, quote unquote. Um, However, imperialism never leaves, Right. It's one of those forms that are kind of perennial and that kind of exists, except there's uh, different uh, acts and different, you know, changes of clothes in which we perceive it differently. But uh, what makes me kind of I I don't know, I I remember living, for instance, in, in Brazil, and seeing something similar to this where there's a parade of, you know, kind of a, a funeral, public funeral for, like, a soldier that had fallen um, in a peace peacekeeping mission in Haiti. And, like, people showed reverence. And as much as it's a crap hole, um, it, you know, to, to have that feeling of oneness, of family, of nation, is something I feel like most Americans are alien to. I mean, you see all the... Uh, gimmicky stickers with his you know, with the boots and the rifle and the, the head, you know, the basically a field marker grave and uh, you know, you know, I I suffered for your service and all this kind of like saccharine bullshit, but you don't see true reverence. And uh, the reason why I picked that specific article out that, you know, yeah, it, it's journalistic and it's punchy, but I think to me, maybe, it it kinda was like a stiletto, it was a short little stiletto that really kind of pierced my heart because uh, it's like that meme. Uh, uh, God, I've seen what you've done for other people. I want that for me. You know, I want that for me. <laughs> you know, I, I want to see uh, beautiful things and beautiful souls exalted like that. Great people. Look who who we bury in uh, gold coffins and compare that to the uh, exploits of this young man. Right? Um, it's a far cry. But further going. Uh, you know, we'll leave it at that. However, I would also like to say this we live in the era of great power politics, and frankly, it's a lot more interesting than the dyad of the Cold War or the the, the horror hellscape of uh, the 1990s America, you know, you know uni- unipolar hegemony, right? Now we're seeing the emergence of uh, countries such as India, uh, the PRC, Russia, Iran, and other contenders, even the EU, I can feel like the ferment of some kind of rebellion um, and the kind of uh, competing interests that we have. And so, uh, without further ado, I would like to change course here, change tack, and I would like to focus on the Rough Riders down in uh, the Spanish-American War. And I, I kind of wanted you to pick your brain about what do you think about Teddy Roosevelt?
1: Uh, Teddy Roosevelt is maybe one of the most American people of all time. Um, <laughs> He's just somebody that you couldn't, you couldn't fit into a box, and you couldn't stop really in any way. And Davis definitely saw that in him. And this was prior to his presidency. This was even prior to his, you know, massive ascendancy in politics. Uh, Davis met him and was well acquainted, and just saw him as this guy who was pure energy and pure vitality. And uh, I think it, even a cursory study of Roosevelt's life sort of reveals him as a figure that is almost larger than life. And that, that seems to be a common thread with the people that Davis uh, covers. They're, they're larger than life and Roosevelt absolutely is. He's practically a mythological figure in the American consciousness, or at least should be.
0: I think he is. And
1: with the, yeah, with the Spanish American war in particular, you see a guy who has no military experience, who has no real reason for doing this just going to a foreign country and leading a cavalry regiment in some absolutely hellish fighting and doing it well Mm -hmm. and uh the the people that he led as well they're half cowboys and hunters and just really uh, a motley crew and as a result you get something that is probably better than most hollywood movies hollywood action (laughs) movies you get a story that's just It's incredible coming out of this. It
0: is kick-ass, and I wish when I was in the Marine Corps. So in the Marine Corps, there's a thing called a tactical decision game, right? And basically, you take historical examples, and you show it to a bunch of uh, wet-behind-the-ear lieutenants and uh, company-grade officers. I mean, you go on and do this with uh, higher-grade officers as well, but this is basically, on the tactical level, it's for specifically junior officers, right? And also, you know, uh, not junior enlisted, but Um, you know, middle enlisted. And so, uh, the NCOs, basically. And, uh, you know, uh, the Spanish Civil War, first of all, a commentary on Teddy Roosevelt. The reason why I started Lance's Legion, uh, you know, character aside, is because I genuinely believe that any man born with a warrior soul is able to pick up the skills required to do modern soldiery. I think that is the uh, great uptick or value of Teddy Roosevelt himself, which I love and admire most, is because most men, they feel like the flaws that they have or were born with, for instance, if they had a disability, that it stops them. It stops them from being a warrior or it stops them from, you know, exuding their power onto the world. And so I digress too much, but Teddy Roosevelt himself suffered from a a myriad of different you know uh, sicknesses he was never in the pink he was always sick i think he had pneumonia or something he had asthma that's right he had asthma and he came down with yellow fever i remember i myself came down with dengue when i had the misfortune of having to live in in uh, brazil because my dad was in the military we're just stationed there i lost like 50 pounds as a kid And, you know, it's tough, and um, it kind of has some long-lasting impacts on your health, on what you can do. And furthermore, of course, like, you know, uh, the difference though, and I think this is where Nietzsche comes in, is that for most, especially in our modern world, the soy kind of people, they they see a a flaw in them, and they they see basically uh, they resent their flaw, they therefore resent themselves, and most importantly, they resent those that don't have it and they want to tear down everything higher than them because it it makes them feel like they can't overcome their flaw. And here's the deal. That's the false way of seeing it. Usually, as my mother would say, I have a number of scars and my mom told me when I was younger that uh it's not a scar, it's a charm, right? And same thing as what Teddy Roosevelt saw. He saw himself like he's like, This is bullshit, I'm gonna stop being treated like a little kid I'm going to stop being treated like I'm helpless, that I have no health, that I have no vitality. I'm going to go out there and, you know, fuck it. I'm going to go be a cowboy. I'm going to, you know, do the hardest wrangling work. I don't know if if anyone's ever been a cowboy or worked a ranch or whatever. That's tough work. And uh, he would go out there and, you know, explore. And when he went to Yale, he was a pugilist. Um, He was a very athletic man and overcame the shortcomings of his of, his health and became someone monolithic in fact to the point where he was such a, a a steel man that I remember one time he was giving a speech for president or something that he was shot in the breast pocket and uh, you know the breast pocket book stopped that bullet and people in the crowd thought it was a uh, it was a prop or like some kind of uh, bullshit uh, you know uh, act and uh, it was just him being fucking hard and so I guess that's why I wanted to start. And talk about Teddy Roosevelt is because he's an ex- exact example of what you can be. Specifically, you who's listening to this podcast between me and Alaric is that everyone, everyone has no excuse to be powerful. It's all a matter of agency and willpower. Now, further going further, the Spanish-American War is, in a way, analogous, of course, to the conflict that we see in Ukraine, in Sudan in uh, Yemen, for instance. Yemen's probably the best example, for instance, of uh, a state that was controlled or dominated by the Saudis, and the Iranians are trying to upend that. The Spanish-American War was similar in this fact that Cuba had always been the prize of many Southerners. You know, for instance, uh, the Freebooters in the 1850s, and even before then, and then the KGC, of course, the Knights of the Golden Circle. uh, Cuba... Uh, it holds a lot of promise, a lot of wealth, and a lot of sugar. And uh, the interesting thing about Teddy Roosevelt is that when he went to Cuba, he had a lot of veneration for the average Cuban, for the the warlike habit that they had and the discipline that they had, um, on top of the fact um, that he didn't go there as part of an imperialist v- uh, venture, if that makes sense. Although... Philippines was, and I, I I think it's great thing that we did in Philippines. Um, but I think it was kind of admirable that he could recognize someone that was near a uh, near pure culture, and value their uh, soldiery skills. And I would like to draw focus on a specific parallel work of uh, fiction. I suppose it's called Message to Garcia. Message to Garcia mm. is this great little. I mean, they issue it to at, at least in the Marine Corps, they issue it to every NCO and they issue it to every officer. But it's this idea that there's this, this uh, Garcia guy, right? He is a uh, guerrilla, and he's fighting against the Spanish uh, monarchy, and he has to go through a, wade through a whole bunch of jungle, and you know, adverse conditions, adverse enemies, um, you know, underprepared. He's tired, he's wounded, and he still makes it happen although at the cost of his life, of course. But the essence of that story is probably the crux of what it means to be a warrior and what it means to have been a Victorian, if that makes sense, is to achieve the act that you set out to do, no matter the cost, no matter the circumstances, um, have willpower supersede all adversity, and I think that's what life is about, but I've droned on and rabbled too long. Unfortunately, when I start drinking whiskey, this is what happens to me. You have to forgive me, Alaric. I'm so sorry. No, but I I wanted to pick your brain on any of the three different tethers that I talked about here, and and I just want you just to kind of tell me, you know, as far as your impression of the Spanish-American War, what parallels there are between us, Cuba, and us in Ukraine
1: well the thing with the spanish american war and maybe this is because i've in the research for this book i ended up reading a lot of journalism on it was that the american people saw the cuban cause as sort of analogous to the american revolution and especially in the you know post civil war america yeah, you have this uh, strained american identity that were, they were trying to establish in some way. And it, not that it was non-existent, just that what America was was sort of contentious. So with the Spanish-American War, you see these you know, dashing Cuban revolutionaries uh, fighting off the, the yoke of an imperial monarchy. And you can see a lot of parallels to the American Revolution in that. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think Davis directly talks about that parallel, but he hints at it a lot especially with the, um, the very first passage in the book, the death of Rodriguez, uh, talking about a Cuban guerrilla being executed and just facing it completely valiantly. Mm-hmm. Um, that passage in particular, he sounds like Nathan Hale or um, Patrick Henry or something like that. He, he sounds like a, an American revolutionary, how he's described and that that sort of spirit animated a lot of people in the public consciousness. Uh, There's a sort of misconception that the Spanish-American War was this imperial, totally cynical power play, but people broadly supported the war. They broadly supported uh, interceding on behalf of the Cubans. So some of that obviously was drummed up support with yellow journalism and propagandistic writing, but to an extent that there was a genuine desire to get out there and assert yourself and to help out these people that want to gain independence. And you see the same sort of rhetoric with Ukraine today. You saw the same sort of rhetoric uh, when they tried to do that. Iran thing a couple of months ago, Mm -hmm. was it Iran or Iraq with the, um, the hijab like anti hijab rioters and whatnot that were just basically the CIA (laughs) And you saw the same sort of parallels being drawn of, oh, well, this is an American thing that's happening here. We should support it because it's a distinctly American phenomenon.
0: Uh, You know, just to comment on that, I I think it's funny because uh, I don't know if you've ever watched, uh, fuck, uh, it's it's a whole TV series of uh, Marines, a recon Marine unit in uh, Iraq in 2003 and how there was this Green Beret that was under the auspices of the CIA that was, you know, basically drawing parallels of the, the, the bullshit Republican Iraqi army that they are trying to raise and say that, you know, we didn't have such great times during Valley Forge at his like disparate failure that these guys were a bunch of, you know, idiots and uh, corrupt <laughs> officials and, and that, in fact, the Baathists actually come out rather well. Of course, they lose and stuff, but, you know, they, they come off as, like, warriors and, and, you know, have integrity, whereas American allies are a bunch of Byzantine mercenaries you know what I mean it's kind of interesting but I I wanted to you you know I think you're absolutely right and say what you will about Henry Kissinger I'm not a fan of Henry Kissinger per se as person I am a fan of however how he sees the world which is real politic he wrote this great book and I excuse me I can't even speak right now see what they do with me Um, I, I absolutely recommend this book called Diplomacy Diplomacy, of course, is a breakdown of how Americans not only see themselves, but how they portray themselves to the world. And he talks about exactly what you're talking about here, which is the American Revolution exported, which fundamentally is a function of our Enlightenment origins, which is actually what Napoleon and the French were doing themselves, you know, and and their kind of votive imperialism was harping on the French Revolution, but toned down the Jacobite you know, crazy stuff going on, right? In any case, I kind of wanted to talk about uh, the Battle of San Juan Hill. Uh, San Juan, if anyone's been in the military, but specifically outside of the military, is one of those decisive battle battle tactics. And if you ever see a topography of the area of operations they are waging war in, I think I want to set the scene for 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 the legionary here. You have to understand, it's tall grass beaming hot sun, no AC. I, I think that's something a lot of people don't understand what the tropics are like without AC, without fans, without anything. And on the specific day, there wasn't that much wind. So uh, usually when you're by the coastline, um, there's not much wind going on. Uh, I mean, excuse me, there's a lot of wind and so it kind of alleviates the, uh, the sense of overbearing heat and so on. But that's not the case and bugs everywhere. And, you know, you're just getting disembarked, so you're full of wet, sopping clothes that haven't quite dried. So they're trapping in all the heat of your body heat. And a number of men actually died from uh, heat exposure, right? From heating out. And, um, you know, obviously this just goes to show the the fortitude of Teddy Roosevelt because when he bore these same weights and adverse conditions, he did so as one of the men. And I think that's one of the things that uh, Americans should have a lot of pride in, especially in their martial culture, is that their officers and leaders always make a point of bearing the adversity and trying circumstances as just as the same as an enlisted man. And that's something that our European counterparts specifically not in Germany, but in France, in Romania, in a number of different French French pattern uh, militaries don't take into account, and uh, they would be better off for lear- learning this specific aspect. However, let me finish. It's a long article, so I'm going to read the last three paragraphs. That was the most cinematic to me, and the most impactful to me, and uh, I kind of just wanted to read that. If that's okay with you?
1: Yeah, this is uh, San Juan Hill, right?
0: Yes it is. San Juan Hill.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great piece.
0: Alright, stand by. So, I speak of Roosevelt first because with General Hawkins, who led Kent's division, notably the 6th and 16th regulars, he was, without a doubt, the most conspicuous figure in the charge. General Hawkins, with hair as white as snow, and yet far in advance of men 30 years his junior, was so noble a sight that you felt inclined to pray for his safety. On the other hand, Roosevelt, Mounted high on horseback and charged the rifle pits at a gallop and quite alone, made you feel that you'd like to cheer. He wore on his sombrero a blue polka dot handkerchief, a la Havelock, a la Excuse me, which, as he advanced, floated out straight behind his head like a guide-on. Afterward, the men of this regiment followed his flag, adopted a polka dot handkerchief as the badge of the Rough Riders. These two officers were notably conspicuous in the charge, but no one can claim that any two men or any one man was more brave or more daring or showed greater courage in that slow, stubborn advance than did any of the others. Someone asked one of the officers if he had any difficulty in making his men follow him. No, he answered, and I had some difficulty in keeping up with them. As one of the brigade generals said, San Juan was won by the regimental officers and men. We had as little to do with a referee at a prize fight, who calls time. We called time, and they did the fighting. That's amazing. First of all, I, I'm still still going to keep on reading, but that's exactly how you want your men. That's how you know they're trained well. Is that you know you let them out the cage, and you all you have to do is maybe hold them back a little bit, but you never want to do that. They want to be attack dogs, absolute aggression. Anyway, I'm reading again. Yeah, and
1: half of you guys were not very well trained, I mean, or precisely, and only sort of just been introduced to military tactics.
0: Precisely. And it just goes to show aggression beats organization 10 to 1. Any case, I continue. I've seen many illustrations and pictures of this charge on the San Juan Hills, but none of them seem to show it just as I remember it. In the picture papers, the men are running uphill swiftly and gallantly in regular formation, rank after rank, with flags flying, with eyes aflame and their hair streaming, Their bayonets fixed in long, brilliant lines and invisible, overpowering weight of numbers. Instead, of which I think the thing which impressed one the most, when our men started from cover, was that they were so few. It seemed as if someone had made an awful and terrible mistake. One's instinct was to call to them to come back. You felt that someone had blundered and that these few men were blindly following out some madman's mad order. It was not heroic then, it seemed merely absurdly pathetic. The pity of it, the folly of such a sacrifice, was what held you. They had no glittering bayonets. They were not massed in regular array. They were a few men in advance, bunched together and creeping up a steep, sunny hill, the tops of which roared and flashed with flame. The men held their guns, pressed across their chest, and stepped heavily as they climbed. Behind this, excuse me, behind these first few, spread out like a fan, were single lines of men slipping and scrambling in the smooth grass. And remember, guys, this is chest-high grass. This is not like, you know, lawn grass or golf grass. This is chest-high sawgrass. I read again. Moving forward with difficulty as though they were wading waist-high through water moving slowly, carefully, with strenuous effort. It was much more wonderful than any swinging charge could have been. They were walked to greet death at every step. Many of them, as they advanced, sinking suddenly or pitching forward and disappearing in the high grass. But the others waited on, stubbornly, forming a thin blue line that kept creeping higher and higher up the hill. It was an inevitable as the arising tide it was a miracle of self-sacrifice a triumph of bulldog courage which one watched breathless with wonder the fire of the spanish riflemen who still stuck bravely to their posts doubled and trebled in fierceness the crests of the hills crackled and burst in amazing roars and repelled excuse me and rippled with waves of tiny flame but the blue line crept steadily up and steadily on, and then, near the top, the broken fragments gathered together with a sudden burst of speed. The Spaniards appeared for a moment, outlined against the sky and poised for an instant fight flight fired a last volley, and fled before the swift-moving wave that leaped and sprang after them. The men of the ninth and the rough riders rushed to the blockhouse together. The men of the sixth of the third of the 10th cavalry and the 6th and 16th infantry fell on their faces along the crest of the hills beyond and opened upon the vanishing enemy. They drove the yellow silk flags of the cavalry and the flag of their country into the soft earth of the trenches and then sank down and looked back at the road they had climbed and swung their hats in the air. And from far ahead, from these few figures perched on the f- Spanish rifle pits, with their flags planted among the empty cartridges of the enemy, the overlooking the walls of Santiago, came, faintly, the sound of a tired and broken cheer. So, for me, I think that was the most impactful part of this entire book. For me, I think you know, if you watch Korean war movies or East Asian war movies, which a lot of them are good, by the way, they can come over the top. They can be ridiculous and almost comes off as saccharine. However, Richard Harding Davis is no yellow paper journalist in the sense that when he represents the verity of events that happened, for instance. He is honest, not just to those people that he is biased towards. Of course, he's an American. He's an American patriot. He loves the Rough Riders and the experience and the expedition that they went on. But also, he gives a lot of praise and uh, well-wishing, how do you say, warriors' respect to the Spaniards. Uh, a lot of people don't understand that You know, it's not every conflict that you meet a, a warrior on the other end worthy of respect. And on this case, the Spaniards acquitted themselves well. They were outmanned, outgunned. They were outmaneuvered, and still they held on. And, of course, they portrayed the action. I mean, Richard Harding Davis portrays the action as it was. And, in fact, they were more for it. The Americans and the Spaniards were more for um, their gritty and real triumph as opposed to any yellow paper you know, lockstep, fixed battle array, glinty bayonet kind of charge. But I'll leave it at that, and I wanted to get your, pick your brain, your heartstrings, hear what you have to say about that.
1: Well, with this, uh, with this war in particular, this was the first true war that Davis had uh, been to, and the impression that he got from the caliber of men he encountered on both sides and his respect for men on both sides of a conflict continued throughout his life. Uh, He was actually famously the only person to go to the Boer war and report on the British side and then switch over and report for the other side as well. (laughs) Uh, So he always has this sort of respect for gallantry and uh, gallantry, but valor demonstrated. And it was this war though, the Spanish American war that led him to his later belief that the United States should have a peacetime draft and have constant military readiness for basically all young men, mm-hmm. uh, just because he saw so much um, quality and so much benefit in, you know, training men to do this and and experiencing this firsthand, experiencing the throng of battle. And it, it just comes through in his writing while he's dead-on accurate about how the actual tactical situation was. Uh, he doesn't make that, uh, let's say, denatured or lame in the same sense that a lot of modern uh, accounts of warfare will. They'll they'll just focus on, oh, it's, it's gritty and nasty and vile and everything sucks. And you know, while that's true, it doesn't give the full picture. And I think Davis gives a fuller picture of the valor demonstrated by men on both sides of this absolutely frantic conflict at San Juan Hill.
0: You know what this reminds me of, this passage? It reminds me of Storm of Steel. Because Storm of Steel yes. relays events exactly like this, where it's no bullshit, no rosy-tinted bullshit, right? When when Ernst Junger says something, it really did happen, and I remember this time that he was holding his brother in the muck and the mire, uh, you know, he was mortally wounded, under this false tree. Um and you know talking about the flares going up and the moon that had arose over the the barren moonscape of the utterly the shelled out field of flanders and um you know that's that's the thing you you said it you hit the nail on the head is that the same event can be seen through the lens of strength or weakness <clears throat> most leftist academic pencil neck communists of course are going to try and downplay what strength looks like because they don't have none and they feel like they can't build any. However, Harding Davis he is more like Ernst Junger where people would probably only see weakness and, you know, lackluster performance, he saw strength. And I see strength. And I you know, I'm an American. I'm proud of being an American and I'm proud of the men that fought there as Americans too. I mean, to to acquit themselves well in such a way, I feel you know, uh, a connection to these kind of guys. And I, I know that sounds, it sounds like, uh, you know, bullshit patriotism or whatever, There's all kind of stuff, but it, I feel it on a kind of a closer note than I think most people do. Um, of course, well,
1: I, that that sort of closeness is basically the, the standard state of human affairs for, uh, I don't know, three millennia <laughs> before now. <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't think it's weird at all.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I'm i really glad that you said that. And, you know, uh, so my first experience having seen people die violently actually was when I was still younger. Uh, I think I was, like, very, very young, and it was in uh, 2011 and 2010. And I was living in Rio, and uh, there were operation military operation happening in Complexo de Alemão. Which is this favela, which I'm sure you're aware of. You know, Brazil's one big favela, but you know, Rio had this. It was clearing out. You know, basically, militia, narco militias. I mean, it's not fair to say they're gangbangers. These people are ex-military members that know how to use specific. You know, heavy munitions. They know tactical, like squad tactics. I mean, these. It's not a joke. Like it's it's a real kind of insurgency fueled by our narcotics, and um, uh, you know although I come from a very affluent part of the family, we had been visiting um, some of my less affluent f- uh, family members that were living there uh, in, in the Baihu and all that kind of stuff. And of course, these operations happen without um, announcement, right? You want to catch these guys with their pants down. And all of a sudden, you hear, for instance, uh, fire, fireworks crackling. It's like Roman candles. So they, they basically keep uh, pickets uh, like little kids, they pay six year old little kids uh, as pickets to launch fireworks, uh, and see if the police are coming or the military is coming, but anyway, the military was coming, and suddenly you just hear a hail of bullets it 's crazy like you know and um, any case like that's that 's when you 're keeping your head down and uh, you know bullets are kind of going all over the place there You can hear the ricochet in the street, which is like an alleyway, and you know can feel the the ground grumble from um, the uh, I, th- I think it was specifically an American model amphibious vehicle, which I don't know why it was there, but it was. Um, and the Brazilian Marines going up the street, and then they were fighting, and then it was over. But when it was over, my mother and I went out into the street, and you kind of see... Uh, like, I, I, at first, I remember seeing through the window every once in a while, like, what was happening. You see, you know, men fighting, you know, firing weapons and so on. Then you go out and you start seeing and smelling uh, dead dead men. And, uh, like, I remember seeing, for instance, there was, like, two men at the end of the alley that we kind of did a closer inspection. And, and you know, um, people, when they watch war movies... I think that they have a lot of experience with seeing, like, you know, splashes of red blood or something out of God of War or some kind of saccharine stuff like that. But they don't kind of prepare you for, for instance, like someone's entire, like, head cavity being completely emptied out and their brains on the floor and what brains look like and stuff like that. And their lungs kind of exposed or, like, this other guy's, like, intestines were kind of poking out. Anyway, what I'm trying to get get at here is that though it is graphic... And I I understand the graphic nature of living, of reality. A lot of people see that, you know, especially the uh, the feminine race, um, they see that with regret. However, you know, even as a young child, even though these men were like uh, criminals, I think I had a lot of respect for the fact that they died in the way they died because... Even like, uh, for instance, I remember this uh, in Plutarch's Spartan sayings where uh, Aegis II condemns a criminal to being hanged, and the criminal goes with such stoicism and right composure to the the noose that uh, Aegis stops the execution for a second and makes sure that everyone admires his stoicism and his, like, uh, you know, I guess uh, his uh, uh, conviction. And in a lot of ways, I think humanity in our time takes for granted the gritty but vital nature of combat and you know of course I'm not a I, I don't support the narco militias I don't think that's a good thing I there are a bunch of communists like whatever but to die like a fighting man I think is one of the essences of war of life itself and I think that's what Harding Davis full circle kind of gets at here is that life is gritty but it's good gritty and I know you're a you know, a martial art artist, what's your, like, most um, closest passion? Because I, myself, I do a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I love Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I've been doing it since I was very young. Um, but, of course, I think there are a lot of different schools and schools of thought. What's your your take on, you know, martial arts and its relation to life?
1: Well, the thing with fighting in particular is, obviously, you don't get the, the finality of, or the... I guess trauma of actual battle. You're not seeing people have their heads caved in, which by the way, that is an insane story. How how old were you when that happened?
0: I, I don't I don't really want to dox myself, but I was I was young. I okay, was, that's fair. Yeah. That's I was like uh adolescent, if that makes sense.
1: Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, no, that would that would have changed my entire outlook on life if that happened. <laughs> if I'd witnessed that as a kid, but um, with martial arts though, you get, you do get a lot of like fatigue because you, you don't, uh, a lot of fights don't end fast, you know, with, with gloves and whatnot, you don't have a, it, it doesn't end super quick like it does in the actual world. So you see two people sometimes just get into this absolute slug fest. And I have been there, but I've seen it more where two guys are completely past even being able to think or hell, sometimes they're not really walking that well and they just keep going mm. and I, I've been at fights and I've been at tournaments and whatnot with family or people I know and you mentioned people of the the female persuasion as well as <laughs> pencil necked <laughs> academic types same thing they just don't get it they, they don't understand why that's impressive and why that's incredible what you're witnessing
0: yeah four to you know
1: you're, you're watching two guys that are just beyond their their limits they they've both been brutalized for Two rounds, three, four rounds, whatever, and they just keep going, and that there is something almost um, spiritual in seeing that. You know, when you it, see somebody whose face just looks like half of a face, <laughs> and they're still fighting.
0: <laughs> it reminds me it, of uh, Don Frye's fight with that Korean guy. I don't know if you ever see it. Yes. Yeah, I was like, yeah, um, and they had.
1: Go ahead. Yeah, they had that respect for each other afterwards.
0: Yeah, you know, that's the thing is that like people see that and they laugh because it's, it is a little bit comical, but. Imagine being on the other end of that, you know, because it's just basically Don Fry and this other guy are basically, you know, going for broke and just hitting each other. But remember, they're experiencing pain. And, it can, it you know, if you give up, it's very easy to give up, right? Like, it's very easy to hear that little bitch voice in the back of your head. Hey, it's okay, man. Like, you know, it's not really this big of a deal. Like, this fight's not a big deal. There's not that much aggression. It's all right, bro. Like, it's not a big deal. But, like, to... Push past that, to just be completely committed to the mission like that. I think it, it speaks volumes for what the essence of life is, and I think why I love your your account and why you dedicated you know so much to it. And I think why it's it, it has such a pull on people, is because martial arts is closer to life than most people w- would believe. Right, most people approach life in a very cold and clinical kind of mathematical way that you know you're right or you're wrong, and there's a right or wrong. Emphasis towards life, but just like the Aeneid said, you know, in uh you know that ancient scripture is like uh by force we find a way, right, and a lot of life is that yeah. way is is forcing yourself through a path that hasn't been laid yet, but because you're such a forceful individual that you pass it through. I think you know every man or everyone has a formative experience or memory. And my er, one of my earliest memories, um, I was five, and my mom was bringing me to Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, like class, right? And um, you know, it was a Gracie, uh, like a dojo, if I remember correctly. Anyway, point being is, I, I go there, and you know, there's a kid that's eight years old. He's you know, fat. He's just this like big black kid. And I remember one night, like. You know, I was still learning. We're all white belts and we're just like, you're just a bunch of kids, you know, a bunch of idiots. And um, I remember kind of like not giving it my all and he got me in an arm bar and I remember like having like stinging tears on my my face and like feeling like so frustrated. But the best part is that my mom, (laughs) my mom is like a lion woman. She told me, you know, she like basically like grounded me and she was ashamed of me and that kind of like concretized like the value of the winner you know what i mean of being a warrior is that being a warrior is about winning it's about giving your all and i think that you know the next day i came back and i absolutely annihilated that kid i was amazing and it was like the the best feeling of triumph ever right and he was like twice my weight he's a fat fuck and like i annihilated him choked him out and he was crying and everything i was just all happy and stuff but i think um A lot of the issue that I see with, I guess, quote-unquote, modernity is uh, softness, right? And the softness born from a non-warrior soul. And I'm really grateful for my mother because, unlike many of her species, I think she had a very, like, uh, masculine expectation of me, Um, even from a young age. You know, kind of machismo that I think you learn from fighting. Um, I I don't know, but like, do you think that there are a lot of character influences that happen, if, especially if you start young, uh, with you know, martial arts in general?
1: Yeah, well, I was actually I was having a conversation about this last night, and the the point that I got out of it is two things. One, fighting is the realest thing that happens to you in your life. Period. It, it's primal. It's something that absolutely levels you and takes you out of whatever frame of thought that you are in, you know, in your day-to-day life. It's, it's immediate, it's present. And it's something that cannot be sort of denied. Mm -hmm. Like you can't have a fight and not have a conclusion usually. (laughs) Um, so it imposes this, this sense of, of understanding and recognizing that there are hierarchies in the world, that there is power, that power is a physical, tangible thing, and that you can possess it, and others can possess it, and sometimes people possess it more than you, and sometimes you possess it more than others. Uh, that's sort of a core element of like supposedly right-wing thought that's really just a truth of the world. But on a sort of more spiritual level, there's something, when you're fighting and when you're reading like the Iliad, there's this feeling At least for me those are the two things that that do it there's this sort of feeling that you get which is this connection to something i i almost want to say ancient Mm -hmm. and you don't you don't get that almost anywhere else especially now because we're very alienated from violence we're very alienated from uh hierarchy and power and just these these tangible things that have been a core element of human experience since time immemorial but Davis's writing, by the way, gave me a, a hint of that that feeling. Mm. Like when you're three rounds into an allegedly light sparring session and you're, <laughs> your nose is a little sideways and <laughs> you're still going. It, it feels like that. There's a, there's a spiritual feeling to that. I, yeah. Um, as for starting as a kid, I, I started fairly young. I was seven or eight, I want to say, and I started with uh, karate. Nice. I actually didn't get into grappling until fairly recently. I was a striker the whole way through. Mm-hmm. And... You mentioned, you know, fighting somebody that's just way bigger than you and uh, you know, needing to overcome that. I think that first happened to me when I was about fourteen. I moved up from like kids karate to like adult kickboxing. And I, I might have I might have been thirteen, maybe fifteen. I don't know, somewhere around then, somewhere around late middle school, early high school. And there's this guy who was six foot six, maybe six foot seven just a behemoth of a dude he was a construction worker and he did not have levels to the amount of force that he used you know he could be sparring uh, like a near pro fighter or uh or a kid and he's going same level every time so i just was getting the life kicked out of me for <laughs> months probably and that was when i started lifting weights that's when i started taking training seriously because i knew that i had to beat that guy um I, don't, I never truly, obviously, used, I was a kid. He was much larger than me. But I, I put on probably 40 pounds in a couple of months. And I was. I, I changed completely in how I approach life. And having that sort of uh, impetus to it, having that that very real reminder of what you're working towards or why you're working towards something is a, a tangible part of martial arts that I think is incredibly important. Um, the other thing is, have you ever heard of a, like a 100-man kumite? No,
0: I haven't. What's that?
1: Well a hundred man kumite specifically is a it's this feat of Kyokushin karate where you fight a hundred black belts in a row. Oh fuck. And it is full contact, bare knuckle to knockout.
0: Jesus. Okay.
1: Um yeah, Masuyama, the founder of Kyokushin Karate, allegedly did three in a row, like one each day. No and way. It, it's brutal. There's something only like twenty seven people have successfully completed one. Do you get a special distinction? Um, I have... What?
0: Do you get, like, a special distinction for that? You know, like... You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, you know, Helio Gracie has, like, a special belt. You know what I mean? Like, d- is there a special distinction for, you know, for that kind of feat? Because that's an impressive feat.
1: Well, It's very literally world news. Like, there's a Wikipedia page that lists everybody who's successfully done one. Jesus. Um. And usually they have to get hospitalized after. I think the most recently the first woman ever did one and she had to go to the hospital because she had like broken both of her feet, both of her hands, a couple ribs, her nose. And um, I think her kidneys were failing Jesus! at the end of it. That's metal. Yeah, it is insane. (laughs) It's just, I I don't know how more people don't, I got to do a thread or something on on it. But as a physical feat, that's something that I I would like to do at some point in my life. But I've done um, smaller ones. So like a like a ten man or a twenty man kumite, and that is,
0: damn, successfully.
1: Yes, I, I didn't die, so. <laughs> dude. That's awesome. It's that's just brutal. I didn't even know that it and existed. That stuff like that is, um, I, I don't know how to describe it. Cause there isn't an endurance contest like that in a lot of other sports, but it's something that I assume that's what parts of Navy SEAL Hell Week feel like, <laughs> but for a week instead of you know. A, hour just getting gangbanged by <laughs> it's incredible what it does.
0: get run a train literally but get like getting the yeah. shit out of that's amazing i've never heard of that i, I i'm definitely going to link that in the description because i, I want to see that but um is that what it man or whatever you know that chinese uh uh I, th- I forgot what was the exact term of the uh martial art that he does but it's kind of oh hey, yeah wing chun that's wing chun, yeah. that's a
1: little different um You you mean the 10 black belt fight in that movie?
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: (coughs) First of all, that's one of my favorite, probably my favorite fight scene in any movie ever. Same. Just, it's so cool, but uh, no, in that one, I don't think that's what they're referring to, especially because when that happened, Kyokushin didn't exist yet. So that didn't exist as a, uh, like a trial, Mm -hmm. but it's very similar ideal. I mean, it's a classic karate test of endurance. The Japanese love that stuff. so.
0: (laughs) No, I, you know, it's, um, so, as an American, I'll, I'll, um, I'll level with you, you know, because, unfortunately, there are a lot of uh, American karate, uh, classes there are a bunch of shit, you know, you, you know how it is, the Napoleon Dynamite type, yeah, bullshit karate, I wanted you, I wanted you to tell us, like, obviously, the dichotomy between that and real karate, and the efficacy of karate in a real fight
1: well, the the problem with karate is that it's this big umbrella term. It's like kung fu. Kung Fu and karate are two things that are really umbrella terms that get grouped into one thing in the common you know consciousness. Uh, karate, I'd say in America, uh, at least probably ninety percent of the time is just a fun fitness thing and something to to get your kids into. It's not something that's going to make you like legitimately dangerous ninety percent of the time. But that ten percent—that's really good. Um, it, usually, you're gonna—it's gonna be an older instructor or a guy who was a pro fighter of some sort, something like that. Somebody that's actually used this. And in those cases, it's very brutal. Now, like true karate is a good bit grappling, a lot of throwing, um, and it's very close in. It's it's you know Kyokushin people call it phone booth fighting. Because you're fighting from like two feet away from each other, there's not a lot of range work, and that element is definitely a, a key aspect of it. So you watch somebody like like Lyoto Machida, or any of the the really good karate guys, and you can tell who's trained in what style because some guys just love this this close in, pounding, brutal method of fighting. And that, in my opinion, at least with my historical study of karate, is the true original form of Japanese fighting. Mm-hmm. And that, if you can learn that somewhere, whether it's like Goju Ryu or Kyokushin or something like that, if you can learn that, that is wicked. It is a, it's like formalized bar fighting.
0: Mm-hmm. No.
1: Because you-, you grab, you, there's a lot of lapel grabs and a lot of um, trips and like ground and pounds, leg kicks, knees, elbows, that is very effective. However, 90% of it is just meme karate. (laughs) I can't emphasize that enough.
0: Yeah, it's unfortunate because it's like, you know, um, a lot of these martial arts, they devolve into this, and I think it's a product of the fact that we live in a mostly peaceful society, right? Like, if I remember correctly, like, you know, Greco-Roman wrestling, for instance, you know, a lot of our sphere loves wrestling, and I have my my qualms with wrestling because a lot of it emphasizes giving your back, which is a massive mistake in any kind of fight, even a real fight, because giving back of your head, you know, that's instant knockout. I'm sure you know this This is why UFC has made it illegal. But I'd say this is that, like, you know, Greco-Roman wrestling was a lot more, you know, pentokroton, if I remember correctly, was a lot more brutal and eye-gouging and real stuff, which came from – fighting in formation you know obviously in the phalanx or the, ph- you know, the phalangites and you know the sarissa and stuff and it came from that of trying to hold formation while defeating your opponent and so on and so I think that's like where karate came from if I don't if I remember correctly and I think it came from actually like standing armies facing each other and fighting each other in hand to hand combat when inevitably these like two you know groups of men devolve into fighting that way now, you know yeah
1: the the history of karate is really interesting because there's not there's not a huge amount of consensus on it, and there's a lot of tradition and a lot of people's you know egos invested in what it actually is. so it's difficult to get a definitive origin, but I, I tend to believe a very similar thing to what you're saying that it, it was something fundamentally for formation warfare and mass training mm-hmm. um, that's that evolved regionally and whatnot. Yeah. But with with wrestling, you mentioned wrestling, I think the one good thing about wrestling that sometimes jiu-jitsu has issues with is there's always uh, an emphasis on strength and force in wrestling. Mm-hmm. I agree. And jiu-jitsu has had that for a long time but I, I think we're seeing early stage jiu-jitsu commercialization. Yeah. Which is what killed karate. Yeah, and uh, which is sad. Jiu-jitsu is great, but
0: Yeah, no, I I think I think it's true even um even before the commercialization which is Um, I mean, I'm sure you know the story of Hilo Gracie, which is this, he was a 90-pound man, very short, 5'4", and he was like, he had a pneumonia problem when he was younger, and so he had only capacity for half a lung or some crazy stuff, and so Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was formed as a martial art to defeat larger opponents, you know, in a grappling scene uh, and, you know, kill them, right? Obviously, and when you're fighting, you know, someone in the, the favela is different, but You know, I I think that's the thing that misses from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu from its core, which is, which is, um, there's a culture of being very kind of chill and, you know, like, you know, like just let it happen, man. And like, I get where they're coming from, but I that's something I really don't like, and it's something I really admire about wrestling is how like absolutely physical and aggressive it is. I just, I just wish the technicality of that form of fighting. Was more geared towards submission, or which is, by the way, killing someone, as opposed to like pinning someone, which I think is lame. You know what I mean? Like, what, what are you gonna do when you pin someone? Yeah. What is this BDSM? You know what I mean? Like, so, so you know, I I agree with you, and I think that um, the best UFC fighters or mixed martial artists, uh, you know, combine elements, which is why I like judo. I think judo is a lot more um, uh, you know, aggressive, and it has good takedown, it has good you know, strike game, etc obviously Muay Thai and all that kind of stuff, but bringing it full circle, because I don't want to get too far away from Richard Harding Davis's, uh, you know, scope of reality at a certain time, pugilism. And I think the funniest thing, or not the funniest thing, frankly, the most tragic thing about early boxing is that these guys used to whack each other until they're dead. And, you know, it it would be often, it would be a kind of semi uh, common case that a boxing match would result in a death And so when people say, for instance, that Teddy Roosevelt was a pugilist in Yale, people are like, oh, it's just academic boxing. It's not a big deal. You know, it's like, you know, it's a whole bunch of prancy, fancy stuff. You know what I mean? But in reality, this guy was really putting himself out there, not just cardiovascularly, but his life, Uh, especially because the mitts were not what they are today, you know? And I kind of wanted to pick your brain about what you think about boxing, you know, in in the American setting, I think is the most American sport out there is boxing. You know what I mean?
1: Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, well, it, at that point, boxing, you mentioned that it ended in death a lot. I had honestly forgotten about that. I read a historical book on boxing a while ago, and yeah, you're right. It's just incredibly brutal. It also favored these guys that were sort of built like Teddy Roosevelt. You have this big, you know, sort of barrel chest to you and uh, big arms and just a, a neck the size of a tree trunk. <laughs> and It was a very different sport from what it is today. Um, But boxing in general, yes, very American, very, I'd say, classic boxing. You go to a boxing match, it feels like you know the referee's wearing a bow tie. It feels like something out of the 19th century in a good way. I I love boxing.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, Unfortunately,
1: I think nowadays it's sort of seeding first place to MMA. Mm -hmm. But I I don't think it's going to go anywhere, especially because it's just incredibly useful. I, I would definitely recommend like I recommend people to get into boxing when that's an option all the time
0: Mm -hmm. and and, I think it's a very good I I guess the reason why I kind of went into this segment as far as just asking about mixed martial arts is because you know a lot of people like we say we lament the way things are today and I mean it's not just martial arts and the commercialization of karate or whatever we lament you know, society, and all this kind of stuff. It's woe is me, and this kind of weak crap. You know what I mean? It's this weak body, weak soul kind of crap. And at the end of the day, one thing that I love, I guess about the military, but, you know, about, like, the martial spirit in general, is being the difference, being the change. (laughs) The only thing holding you back is weakness. And frankly, like, uh, uh, one thing that you learn about command a command of people is that most people are akin to horses, right? I think that's the most similar spiritual animal. I know I'm going to get a lot of heat for this on the internet. Whatever. Everyone can go fuck themselves. But, you know, uh, the uh, soy academic is going to say, well, we're actually most related to chimps. You know, in our social setting, we're like chimps. Imagine how horrible that would be. <laughs> Second of all, or you know, there's people like Rousseau who believe where we're like orangutans but i would say that we're most like horses and the reason i say this is because not only are we more graceful and i think a less ugly creature than the chimp not just physically speaking but also like in their social dynamic i'd say that the way leadership occurs um in these two different types of animals is probably most close to us than chimps are because chimps they 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 do stuff that uh you know uh local inhabitants of Baltimore would right which is they 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 like sneak up on a rival you know chimp and they you know basically beat him up on him you know with a whole bunch of dudes you know and then you know break his brain open and then the you know the head chimp is the new head chimp uh, horses horses are different the way that they establish dominance especially the stallion is that there's one on one fighting between the stallion and the uh you know the up and coming stallion to be right and they fight each other it's brutal I mean they they kick each other they hoof each other I don't know if you've ever a horseback ride but I, I've been horseback riding and not just like on some equestrian BS like American you know a course but I mean like on a farm you know with workhorses who's like Gallop and and Grace are non-existent and they're tough animals you know it's not just like some broken in you know barn horse it's a, a horse that's had enough of your shit for the last 15 years of its life you know what I mean and uh, yeah. so, you know, when you're a rider, of all, you have to act like a stallion. And a lot of it comes from confidence. Um, a lot of it comes from, uh, you know, understanding that the majority of horses in general, man and woman, are meant to be followers. And it's okay, first of all, to be a follower because, you know, with a tribe with too many chiefs and no Indians, that's not a tribe. That's a, that's a civil war, right? But for those men like you and me that were born for leadership, for those yeah. that are listening to us are born for leadership. I think it's important to understand that if you just had the conviction to espouse your beliefs and to wear it well, to gracefully present it to the world and enforce it in the world, you can become a stallion of your own herd. And a lot of that comes with competence. But anyway, long story short, the people in general, they want someone forceful. And I think Mussolini was right when he says that the people is a woman. What he means by that from his Italian perspective is that women were meant to be forced upon. You know, like, in an American setting, in the Anglophonic setting, women have this weird station where they're, like, put on a pedestal, which is why there's feminism now is because we we kind of, like, you know, oh, we don't want to hurt her or something like that. Women love that shit. They love having someone being forceful on them, even though they won't agree. They, you know, they, it's like a classic Greek, ancient Greek myth about it. But my long story short that I'm trying to draw the illusion to command of men and especially in a, a, a setting of men in a war setting is that a lot of the time you have to be forceful. There, You have to be the disciplinarian in the sense that you have to put fucking solid rules and you will expect it or you will have to fight, or this will happen, and you have to make the tough calls, and you can't break it, because a lot of a lot of command is that virile impulse to imposing yourself onto others. And with that, I kind of wanted to transition to the last part of your book here um, that you wrote about, for instance, you know, Soldiers of Fortune, and I was reading through it, and I kind of wanted to ask you which... Part of soldiers of fortune you enjoyed the most and I kind of wanted to talk about how that has a relevance to you know men that for instance never went to the military but how they can always be a warrior and in a real setting in a political setting too you know in a real combat setting
1: yeah well you mentioned um leadership with with force and this is a, a minor digression here but even in corporate environments and in military environments that aren't very physical, for example, take submarine warfare in the Navy, which is probably the least physically strenuous physical method of warfare. Uh, people want to follow this leader who's sort of a, a berserker almost. And uh, if you read, I believe the book is called Submarine Exclamation Point by Edward Beach, uh, your, your viewers would probably or your listeners would probably enjoy that. Uh, it's a firsthand account of World War II submarine warfare. And the leaders that are held up as exemplary aren't necessarily the ones who are the most uh, like shrewd or the most understanding. They're the ones with the most force to them. And they they did amazingly well because they had that force to them and their their men wanted to follow a strong figure like that. So even outside of the realm of the physical, that absolutely applies. Mm hmm. And I think that, that that's something that Davis wanted to talk about with Soldiers of Fortune, at least with uh, Clay being this very fantastically wealthy individual because of the mining endeavor. But at the same time, he's this physical, tactile, forceful individual. You know, mm-hmm. he's a he's a man of power, a man of force. Uh, at least that's how he's written. And with that, I, I mean, obviously, I enjoy the the conclusion to it with the, the coup and the you know drama of that because that just feels real. It's not like this big confrontational, you know, set piece basically. But it, it's this tightly focused and fast paced, uh, confusing drama that's going on. And I, I think that's a greatly written piece based on Davis's own experiences with military coups and military uh, engagements.
0: Alaric, why, but, don't, why, uh, don't, why don't you do us a favor? Why don't you give us a synopsis? Obviously, don't give everything away because I don't want to uh, completely ruin the experience of reading it for the first time, but just give us a synopsis of it, what happens.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Soldiers of Fortune came out in 1897. So, it was credited with building up a lot of support for the Spanish-American War. And this is because it takes place in this fictional nation of Aloncho, which is meant to just be basically Cuba. And the, the main character is this guy, Robert Clay. Robert is his first name, right? Yes. The main character is Clay, and he is a civil engineer and a sort of filibuster, former mercenary type. His, his past is sort of mysterious, but he's a, currently a civil engineer. And he proposes to this very rich guy to build a mine in Elancho where there are completely untouched stores of precious metals. And he does this because he wants to become closer to the the rich guy's daughter, this girl I uh, was Lang Alice Langham, who he's seen in the newspaper because she's this very rich high society girl and he wants to you know get with her he just fell in love with her based on this picture and description and from there he he succeeds at that he starts building the mine and he builds this house that's eerily similar to the Great Gatsby, which came out basically thirty years later. <laughs> where he's trying to make everything perfect so he can meet Alice Langham and you know, fall in love with her and marry her and he not go that way at all. It's it's very interesting. Um, by the end of the book, he ends up in this power struggle between this uh, rebellious general and then the current president of Elancho. And it's it turns from sort of a Americana romance story to a action thriller. I won't give much more information than that, but it's great. Personally, my favorite thing in it was the romance because you don't see a book with that type of romance written anymore. I haven't read something like that in an incredibly long time.
0: You know, I love um, I I think it's funny that um, a lot of people, they miss the fact that um, Eros is the child of Aphrodite and Ares, right? The god of war and the god of love, yeah. you know? And uh, I think, uh, for instance, if you read uh, Jean Larger, uh, The Centurions there was, a lot of it was a romance between the main character and, you know, a local pied noir uh, Algerian girl, which is a French girl, obviously, you know, white girl and, um, you know, there's a lot of, like, allegories between her and the Mother Earth of Algeria and how he was the warrior imposing himself on her and, and making fruit of the land and I know that probably sounds, I guess, esoteric to most, but I think that is the allegory that is true to to life. And, um, you know, the phallic and the uh, kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like that energy is what the warrior is, yeah, you know, the phallic energy, right? And, um, you, you know, as Nietzsche says, uh, like all energy, all masculine energy is phallic and, and, you know, wisdom only loves a warrior, right? And so I, I guess I kind of wanted to kind of wrap it up here, but I wanted to talk about that specifically, soldiers of fortune, because as we saw a soldier of fortune in the news recently um, the commander of Wagner group uh, Prigozhin, a coup and the promise of something that could happen right, and a lot of people don't understand that how possible it can still be to, uh, you know, become a a leader of a nation by force of arms and, you know, of course that kind of went to a shambles but I think about Elon Musk, and I'm going to probably catch some heat here because obviously Elon Musk is not a military man yet, but I would say this guy is like a nation unto himself, and I think that on top of everything, like, I don't know if you've seen Elon Musk, that guy's built like a fucking tank, and like, I don't know if you've seen that he's uh, been challenging uh, Mark Zuckerface and, uh, what's his other name, uh, uh, Bezos to a, to a fight, and I think that's awesome because- so He challenged
1: Bezos too? That's awesome.
0: Yeah, yeah, and he got blocked by both dudes, and that's awesome. And, uh, (laughs) I mean, the truth is, though, like, uh, military life, of course, there's a question of competency, but a warrior is a warrior, and I feel like Elon Musk is a warrior in a a very, like, visceral sense. I mean, a lot of his intellect, of course, is – is drawn to these uh, questions of science and you know SpaceX and Tesla and and uh, finance and so on. But I think that he's kind of a man of power, and probably the cumulus of, uh, of a of an American, like the archetype of an American. And I'm really pleased that, you know, he's actually kind of taken a, a tone more towards physicality because if he chose, if he wanted to, I feel like he could be someone that's uh, like the Prigozhin type, you know, to be a, a Caesar type in America. I don't know. I wanted to pick your brains about that just to shoot the shit about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Elon is a, he's an interesting figure. He's somebody that really isn't supposed to exist nowadays mm-hmm. um, with the economic system and the culture. He's just not somebody that is supposed to be around mm-hmm. um, a guy who's independently fantastically wealthy and is spending it on doing space exploration and building cars and just, mm-hmm. he just does stuff for fun. Essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's he, this, the, especially with the fight talk between him and Zuckerberg, I didn't know about Bezos, but with him and Zuckerberg, uh, I, I like that that sort of calls back to a more aristocratic sense of things. Mm-hmm. You know, we're both stupidly wealthy, but we're going to get into a ring and
0: demolish uh, each other. That's what aristocracy... Hey, I'm sorry, I think I lost connection here. You know, freaking uh, the Sudanese intelligence forces are jamming my connection from Port Sudan. I'm sorry, brother. I'm sorry. But just to bring it full circle, um, obviously we're talking about Elon and all that trash, and uh but let's talk about the thing right, right at hand here um which is your book you know uh, Richard Harding Davis please as i said before reach out to alert the barbarian on twitter he also ha- uh, runs the dissident review which is frankly phenomenal i have actually bought their first two first two issues correct it's your first two issues yeah perfect and um if you want to write please Please suggest writing to him as well, but like I said, I'm going to have a whole post and in the, in the comment section below, there will be um, hyperlinks to all these things. I highly recommend it, especially if you're in the military and you want to give visceral, real understanding of the warrior spirit to your men. Or if you're a warrior at home yourself who is a citizen soldier, it's a great way to educate yourself. So I just wanted to thank you, Alaric. Thanks for coming on the show. Me and Sergeant Barnes are absolutely happy. Um, Thanks for coming on to the Warrior Room, brother. I appreciate you.
1: That is high praise. Thank you very much.